Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive in. If you would like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's C as in S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the episodes and shows on iTunes and Spotify, and of course, the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode seven, with the title of Insights from the Science of Happiness and Positive Emotions. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to welcome my guest today, Nick Marks. And I met Nick randomly on LinkedIn, like you do. I think he was stalking me one day, and we came across and we chatted. And now Nick is now on the podcast. Brilliant. So Nick is a statistician, a trained therapist, and a TED speaker. A TED speaker, together. No X. We're in the presence of royalty. Brené Brown's best friend, I'm sure. So, well, and he's also the founder of the Friday Pulse and specialize in improving team morale and measuring it. So I asked Nick to describe his superpower, and he said, seeing the patterns between things and communicating simply without being simplistic. So hello, Nick. Welcome to the show. So tell me more. What are insights from the science of happiness and positive emotions? Uh, Hi, Joe. Um, So, um, yeah, I'm a statistician, and I have over the years started to specialize in happiness and well-being. I started off doing quality of life. and I am a trained therapist. My mother was a family therapist. So I got quite interested in therapy when I was young. And although I was a statistician, I I kind of end up with this mix between hard statistical skills and soft analytical ones, which probably makes it it more interesting. Um, And what are the insights from, I mean, there's so many insights from happiness and positive emotions, but most people tend to start by asking what is happiness and is it different for different people? And and in one way, it's the same for us. And in other ways, it's different, you know, in that happiness can be both thought of as an emotion. So I feel happy now and also a thought I am happy with. And so there's a tension between how people use the word. So some people use it to mean contentment and, you know, quietness. And some people mean enthusiasm and joy. So the brilliant thing about the word happiness is that people can sort of project onto it lots of different things. And I kind of like that um, from a, interpersonal perspective but then you know when you get into how you measure it you start getting more technical so there's a there's a lot of lot of insights for them but basically my work is about how the people leave better lives so when you talk Mm. about inclusion belonging and creating better lives that's kind of what i do and uh and i try and bring my statistical skills to that okay I, i mean i've always come from this inclusion concept about avoiding stereotypes, avoiding grouping people and creating in-groups and out-groups. But I guess statisticians, you're trying to use data to create groups of people. So how do you see the individual within that statistics rather than seeing people as a lump? So, you, I mean, that's it's very interesting. So you can use statistics in different ways, but mainly statistics, even the word comes from states. Um, so it came from population surveys. That's the, the root of the word. And so, yes, was generally looking at, at populations, but not always. You're often looking to identify subpopulations and, and groups within that. And there's 
one, you, you see patterns. Um, sometimes you see patterns where all humans move in the same direction and some patterns you see where different groups of people act differently. So you, you do start to see that and there's a different analysis that you can do, do for that, that, that starts identifying those. But, and there's, there's some ways that when you're doing population statistics, um, the averages are very disappointing because you miss that variance, you know, and actually all of us know in our own lives that people are different um, and yeah. yet we're the same. <laughs> you, yes. know, you know, there's there's two things going on. There's something generically about being human and then there's the, the variability within it. And, and actually stats is really quite good at identifying both of those things. So, you know, we, we you know, we can see if you're tracking people through time, you see some people becoming happier, some people becoming less happier, some people bouncing back, some people staying very flat. You know, you can see all of those patterns in it. And there was a lot of individual stories in there. I mean, a, a very classic one is that when population researchers look at happiness compared to age, you find that the least happy age is 42. Um, which I'm sure Douglas Adams and uh, would be delighted with that that was the answer to it. But that's roughly where it comes, early 40s. But of course, there's many very happy 42-year-olds and there's very many unhappy 60-year-olds and unhappy 20-year-olds. So the, 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 the means always hide a lot of stories. And I think that's, yeah, that's one of the things you have to be careful about with statistics is that you don't hide that individual variability. Yeah, because we look at this bell curve of normality, aren't we? This, this midpoint. And um, we've got, you know, especially you've got your upper percentiles and lower percentiles. And, and I, what is normal? It, it's, it's such a wafer thin part because it, Everyone's normality is different, isn't it? It, is, it, is, it must be really hard to try and find typical human A or typical human B uh, from a statistical point of view. You could probably plot it that um, <laughs> average height maybe, but not average breadth. So yeah. there's yeah, so many different factors around human human makeup and, and opinions. Isn't there? So yes, yeah, that's... Well, we, 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 there's, we often talk in statistics, yeah, about bell curves and we've talked about standard deviations. The difference mm. between it. And one of my favourite stories about that is that they took these Buddhist monks... And they were looking at brain scans of them uh, and they got them to meditate and and they were looking at these brain scans and um, they were four standard deviations away from the mean of what other people's brain scans are, which means it's entirely impossible they existed. But all, all 10 of the Buddhist monks were similarly. And what that basically meant they started to realize was that you can change the shape of your brain by your behavior and your meditation. So the fact they'd done 20 years of meditation had actually created different patterns in their brain than we'd seen in a normal American particularly uh, population before. And that wasn't that they were four standard deviations. It's just that they had not met people like them before. <laughs> they had to, and, and so, you know, you, you, you sometimes statistically, you box things in too much and you have to watch out for that. So when we, when we talk about things like bias and stereotyping and all these sort of things we do as humans for our own safety and protection, what you're saying basically is the brain is learning a lot of this stuff and then the plasticity of the brain as such evolves based on your environment. Is that, is that what you're trying to say here? And we're we're definitely, about the yes, we're definitely able to shape the plasticity of our brain. I mean, it happens with brain injuries, you know, which you, you can see with people and it happens with, you know, diseases such as Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm. We'll see it, but you can see it also with mindfulness and meditation that actually people start improving and, and, you know, how, calm you are. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I just read some neuroscience. It's not right. my speciality, but you know, if you ask about biases, then, then that's actually something different really, because we have these two big systems. I don't know if you know Daniel Kahneman's work. Uh, have you ever read his book? It's called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Oh yes. Yeah. Fast brain, slow brain. Yeah. Yes. And the fast brain is, is very emotional. It's looking for immediate signals. It's, it's, um, intuitive. It's biased. Uh, and, and a typical way of thinking about it is that 
we have a very strong signal when we meet someone for new we we make a judgment about them straight away and basically from an evolutionary perspective it's friend or foe you know should i approach this person should i avoid them that's the, the most basic thing you know and of course if somebody looks like you uh, if somebody feels like they come from your tribe, they're a friend. And if they're different, they look different, different color skin, different type of person, different accent, then they feel more like a foe. And that's very, you know, so if you look at friendship groups, for example, you find that people have very strong friendship networks with the people that they grew up with because they've learned that friendship thing. Very strong friends with that someone the same accent. If you meet someone from your hometown later in life with an accent, it's the same. You've got immediate trust, even though it could just well be a bad person as a good person for someone else, but you instinctively feel it. And so there's all those biases going on all the time. And so that's, that's, that's just part of our, our, our speedy response. Cause if we had to assess everybody from route one, every time it would take too long. Yeah. Um, and we wouldn't get anywhere. Completely. Yeah. No, it's a very good way of putting it and explaining it, isn't it? It's uh as some of the challenges we face when we try and explain biases to people where they root. Uh, and I often find that when we talk about bias, it always seems a negative thing. We can actually have positive biases. We can actually favor people as well as discriminate or outgroup people. So yeah. it can work both ways, can't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is that sorting. It's a sort of Harry Potter sorting algorithm, isn't yeah. it? You yeah, know, it is. people, some people into Gryffindor, some people, whatever, you know, but it's like, um, so, uh, you're putting people in boxes because we can't deal with the whole person. So we, we categorize and, mm. and, and we, and we stick them there. And that is useful, but it's not a holistic approach. And so, yeah. and of course we can't, you can't pay attention to everybody that you meet. You, you just be overloaded. Uh, uh, too much information. Yeah. You have yeah. to filter. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're recording this right in the middle of the new norm, this unprecedented times, whatever adjective we want to describe our current situation in. But the reality is that the world's changed for a lot of people in various ways. I mean, myself, yourself, and many people we probably know. So as a statistician, you must be looking at the news, looking at the figures that come out of the government, the, the graphs they're producing. Um, is that kind of like a, a busman's holiday for you? Is that kind of the things that you really love? Or are you, you sit the shouting at the telly going, come on, these stats are telling a lie? How do you see the stats that are coming out? Well, it's interesting. I mean, talking about bias, there's something called a negativity bias in psychology, which is we pay attention to negative news and negative signals. And, and the reason why, again, if evolutionary reason is that threats can kill us and you only die once. So we pay a lot more attention to anything that could possibly kill us because, you know, life is long and death comes once. Whereas positive things happening are not so interesting to us because they keep coming along. So we don't report very much on weddings and things like that. We report on deaths, we report on bad stuff, you know. And so what is going on is that there is such an overload of bad news at the moment that it's actually very difficult for us to process. So if you want to look after your own mental health, then, you know, one of the first things you, do, you should be doing is listening to less news because, you know, there's not, it's outside of your locus of control, most of this. And so you're, 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 you're taking negative signals that you can't really act on. So of course there are things we can act on. And actually I think Britain is doing an extraordinary response, you know, is actually people are, really taken on board the message that we need to stay at home and protect the NHS and save lives. <laughs> it's like duck and cover of the old, isn't it? We all, we all yeah. know we've got to climb under the dining room table to save ourselves from the nuclear bomb. Yeah. We're now, we're, we're now, as you say, stay at home and protect the NHS. No one's ever going to forget that. It's kind of a... No. And, but it's like, 
also what's really happening is that death rates have doubled and that's really bad for those people that have died uh, and for their families. Some of those people, maybe two thirds were probably likely to die in the next six months, 12 months. Anyway, they had multiple conditions. Um, some are absolutely new deaths and that's absolutely tragic. But what that means is that pretty much the shape of the curve of people's deaths is roughly the same as, as our normal risks of dying. It means that basically most of us have got twice the chance of dying this year than we did. If we get COVID, if we don't get COVID, I'm not quite sure if it's coronavirus we get or COVID, but you know, if we don't get the, the virus, then we're our normal probability. But if we, if we get it, we've got twice the chance of dying than we would have done. Well, I'm 55 year old male and my chances of death this year are about 0.8%. So they probably increased about 1.6%. This year, that still means 99, 98.4% chance of survival this year. So I'm, I don't feel too bad about it, but it's putting it in perspective. I think it's quite hard for a lot of people. And of course, the government wants to uh, get us to comply quite rightly. And so there's a lot of emphasis on the deaths to help us sort of do it. So it's an interesting hmm. trade. There's a statistician looking at it. I, I understand the statistics. This is a really, I mean, I said it very early on to, to, to people in my team that actually this looks like a pandemic. I said that right back in February and, um, you know, and it could spread very, very wide, but, um, but you know, that's actually always been humanity's lot. So I think we've got a little bit complacent that, you know, we're sort of superheroes and we're never going to get it to quote, yeah. you, you know, but yeah. I mean, in the early stages, I was kind of, I was expecting this kind of new world to be more visible and obvious. You know, you look out the window and we haven't got uh, alien creatures running down the street, biting and attacking people and demolishing stuff like you see in the movies. We haven't got this, this dark sun appears or this big hovering spacecraft. So people are looking around going, the world looks the same to me. Nothing's really changed. So it's really confusing. It was in the apocalypse, we're supposed to see all this stuff. We've got this Hollywood bias going on, haven't we? We, we know what a pandemic's supposed to feel like. Yeah. Riots and burning and looting and, and Will Smith running around shooting zombies <laughs> or something. And it's kind of, we haven't got any of that thing to be scared of. We've almost got an unknown enemy, haven't we? Is that, is that part of the problem people are feeling? It is. I think actually in some ways we've been primed for the apocalypse, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, actually this is something that goes way back earlier than recent movies. It goes right back to the New Testament and, and revelations and, you know, mm. and, and, you know, four horses of the apocalypse. And, you know, the idea that the world will come to the end, the world's not coming to an end. We, we've got a, we've got a nasty disease and it's killing people that shouldn't be dying. But it's not going to wipe out humanity. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, the plague took out a third of the UK population. At, at the worst, this is going to take out one percent of the population. But of course, that's still tragic. And I'm I'm not against the lockdown or anything like that. But it's it you know it's it's it is unlikely to affect me personally. And so therefore, I shouldn't get too anxious. In a sense, is I'm trying to say something which is about our mental health and about our our, our attitude towards this. And I think for most of us. The likely thing is that we'll get away with it and, you know, there'll be a vaccine. But of course, for some, it isn't, you know, and, you know, my mum's 85 and of course I worry about her and, you know, um, but she is safely locked down with my sister. So, you know, she's probably fine. She definitely should avoid getting it because, mm. you know, her, you know, she's actually relatively healthy, 85 year old. I was trying to work out the stats on it because that's what I do. And, um, you know, she has a 15% chance of dying anyway this year. It, that's up to 30. So, you know, she, you know, but that's, that's age appropriate and that's what it is. Yeah. 
I mean, as you're, as you're talking about this, uh, double the chance of dying this year statistically through this COVID. I was, my brain's now going off on a tangent thinking, well, my risk factors from other things have gone down. So I'm not traveling. I'm not crossing the road. I'm not doing other dangerous things that humans do where I could get randomly killed by another event. So I'm doing less of those dangerous things or risky things and more at risk from COVID. So there's going to be a, a, an amalgamation of those figures to say, well, actually, my risk profile will go down because of this, but go up because of this. Or are you saying it's double well, overall? I mean, there must be a sophisticated calculus you could do, but, you know, yeah. So yes, accidents on the road have gone down, but possibly accidents at home have gone up. True. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Possibly domestic violence has gone up. You know, so the, we don't know about suicide rates, and uh, and uh, you know when you know we do know about suicide that a lack of hope is very difficult in suicide. That if you've got no, and I think there must be some people that feel very hemmed in and helpless at the moment, mm. stuck in a difficult relationship, stuck alone, stuck at home made unemployed or, you know, feeling like there's no, nothing to work. And if they were already, you know, on the borderline suicide, I don't, I don't know what the stats are there, but I would imagine that we'll have a, a spike in severe mental health problems uh, and suicide. I imagine we'll have some post-traumatic stress that comes out of this for people that have got uh, difficult situations. And we'll see what's called post-traumatic growth for some people, you know, this isn't going to be evenly distributed about how people respond to it. But many, many people, if you're sort of middle class and you've got financial security and emotional security are going, wow, maybe I should travel less. Maybe I should quieten down. You know, they're going to get quite mindful experiences of that. But of course, again, that's likely to be what we call the social gradient where, you know, the people that are already secure are going to have better experiences and the ones that are already insecure financially, emotionally, uh, physically are likely to have worse. So we are, so there's likely to be some increases in inequalities of experience, I would think. Yeah. I've I've heard people saying, well, we're not all in the same boat, but we are, we're on the same river in different boats. So we're on a, on a similar journey, but having different experiences. Some of us have got lovely boats with, with uh, outboards <laughs> and, and sun decks, and some of us are on a raft with a paddle. It's been so yeah, completely. It's, it's a variability of lived experience. I also think there's a lot of people who have acquired uh, problems through it. So I'm, I'm thinking about people who were previously well off, um, had great jobs or owned their own business or had a security of income commission. Now they're finding that they're, they're, they're now in a position where they're financially struggling that they've never been in before. So there's a, there's a, a great leveling for some people. As you said, there's, there's a whole group of people who are secure, happy. Mm. Uh, they're, they're just getting bored at home. There's a whole load of people that, that have lost significant part of, of their, of what they believe was their life. Uh, and they must be really struggling right now, I guess. Yeah. I think there are, you know, there's a, I mean, there's whole sectors that have shut down and there'd been people that, you know, I read something on some news website of a guy who said, I haven't even opened my coffee shop and I've gone bust, you know, and he must have worked towards that passion to do mm. something in his own control and worked out where he was renting. And then he's gone bust before he's even opened his doors, you know? And so that I think there's going to be all sorts of, you know, personal, real, real challenges. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends that have, 
been furloughed. I've got one of my kids has been furloughed. Though actually, to be honest, he's dead happy with being furloughed because he, you know, he's 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 trying to pick up a new skill and do web design or whatever like that, and, yeah. and he's getting paid. You know, it's like I've got eighty percent of my pay, and like you know, he's he's quite happy. But um, but you know, other people that's not a happy experience at all, and it's a very insecure experience. So yeah. so you know, I think this I think this is great, and I see it in my team. I have a team of twelve, and the ones with young children our preschool are, are starting to struggle after we were six, seven weeks into lockdown when we're recording this and, and it's a cumulative effect going on for them. You know, the first three, four weeks, we all had a shock, but we sort of bounced back and then, uh, you know, and I, I think that, I, I think that that's where quite a lot of people are at this very moment. Um, I, so, um, so you're yeah. saying it's, there's this initial kind of panic, worry, anxiety, and then there's this, something to focus on. Now we're into this tailing off into sort of this set in reality. Is that, is that what you're saying? So there's this, yeah. there's no end date. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no, there's no light at the tunnel or whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. <laughs> Someone said the light of the tunnel is a train coming towards yeah. you. I read <laughs> I think that's some expression from the Vietnam war or something, but yeah. I, I'm a statistician. So I do look at data and actually, you know, Friday pulse, my business, what we do is we ask, uh, Work employees, how their week has been, you know, how have you felt at work this week? Are you very unhappy through to very happy? And the idea is to pick up that good, bad signal, a bit like the friend foe signal. Uh, it's like, is it going well, my work? Is it not? So we've got clients uh, across the world, but the US, the UK, mainly some other places. I've never, ever had a pattern in my data across all of our clients before because clients do different things. They've got different challenges, setbacks going on at different times. I mean, we get a very small seasonal effect where the summer's slightly happier than the other times because uh, we're mainly Northern Hemisphere. We have got some Hemisphere clients, but mainly. But you've got a massive drop middle of March across every one of our clients. So, you know, we, we have an index from 0 to 100. Most of our clients run along on average, about 70. We obviously have some clients of 50, some 80, but that's where they're going along. And the whole average just dropped down to 45 in the middle of the week. And now we're back to 60, 65, but we're not back to 70, 72 where they were. And, and, and so there's been some bounce back, but there's absolutely a gap from where they were. And our clients are clients that are very already very interested in their employee well-being. Otherwise they wouldn't be using us. So they're, we're no doubt, they've no doubt got better experiences going on than many out there. And they've got this huge gap, you know, and that as a statistical story is very interesting because it's basically that's resilience in action, which is that is it you're seeing people's weekly experience. They have a setback. How do they come back? And what we're seeing, we're seeing a partial comeback, but not a full comeback at the moment. This is kind of that buzzword of, probably five, 10, 15 years ago, the bounce back ability of what we called it, isn't it? It's this <laughs> resilience, tenacity, yeah. um, stiff up at it, British sort of stoicism, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's this ability to take challenges and bounce back through them, right, isn't it? Well, they, when they psychologists, my understanding of resilience, I'm not an expert in resilience, but well, I think of it that statistically, but there's different ways you can think about it. So you can think about being a, a bouncy ball and a hard wall and the ball comes and hits the wall the wall stays absolutely solid. So it is resilient and the ball comes back. The way the ball deals with it is it absorbs the shock and then moves moves away. So there's two types of resilience. There's the, the firm sort of resistant resilience yeah. and then there's the absorption one. Um, and I think that 
what we're seeing is the absorption one working with people. They've absorbed the shock. They're coming back. They're putting a brave face on it. And then they're finding, well, remote working isn't as easy as being with other people. There's some loss with that. There's some gains. There's some losses. You know, it depends on how they can set up their home office. You know, mine is in the corner of my bedroom you know, because we've got two teens in the house. And when I used to work at home, I did often work at home on a Friday. They were at university or school and I'd sit at the kitchen table and be quite happy. Now I'm, well, I'm quite happy actually, but I'm in my corner of my bedroom. I've got pushed to the corner. But, um, um, you know, there's it, different experiences. You know, some one of my team, she, she works from downstairs, but when she wants to take a call, she has to go up to her bedroom. She hasn't got a proper desk. Her back's aching after five weeks and her young child, you know, doesn't understand. She's got a three-year-old, doesn't understand what's going on. So there's so many different strains and some mm. of them are cumulative. Some of them are starting to build up now and, and to really get under people's skin. So it's hard. It's hard for some people. Yeah, I, 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 I try and talk about this in, almost imagine when you first left home all those many, many years ago and you move into your first home or you live on your own or you move into your, your, your bed sit wherever you did. And the first couple of weeks, you live on baked beans on toast or the odd jacket potato. You think, oh, and then one day you wake up and go, actually, this is life. This is how it's going to be now. That reality kicks in that I can't keep just in that basic survival mode. I've got to move into my new business as usual, my, my new life as usual mode. And that's where I think we've, we've, we've had this holiday. We've, we've, we can all go on holiday for two or three weeks. We can all live in that sort of like hiatus of, of normality. And then when the brain suddenly goes, hang on a minute. I've now got to do this for a long time. Uh, this is not going to get fixed quickly. We're now talking about June. We're now talking about July. Some people talk about September. Now we're talking about maybe it going on till next year. People think, well, actually, I've now got to adjust in a more permanent way. And maybe yeah. this is this is maybe what I'm picking up on what you're saying is now we're, we're getting into this. We've gone through our denial and our stages of grief or whatever it may be. We're now having to move into acceptance and accept our lot. And maybe we're not quite so happy with that as we thought we might be or anxiety levels are kicking back in because we're, we're now missing something. Yeah. It's been some nice writing, hasn't there on the stages of grief and how that's going on. And I think that there is some of that. Um, I think in the work situation, I don't think we're anything near like a new normal. I think there's been absolutely, you know, larger institutions have had to move remote instantly. I mean, I remember, you know, beginning of March, hearing that one of the accountancy firms was going to have everyone work from home on Tuesday to see how their systems were. And I thought, well, that's a bit dramatic. And then, you know, two weeks later, we were all working from home. So they had it absolutely right that they were testing yeah. their systems. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, the next week we were starting thinking about it, but anyway, it's, it, it, but it's been very hard for them and people didn't get into HR and into uh, people departments to furlough people, to make them redundant, to, to be their mental health uh, advisor because, you know, effectively so many people are, are really stressed and who do they going to turn to? They're going to turn to HR. So I think organizations are still very stressed and I heard someone make a nice analogy. He said, it's like, it's like there's a road accident. And the first thing that happens is that, the passers by and whatever, just try and stick something to stop the bleeding, you know? And then the second one is the paramedics arrive and they start just keeping, and then you have to get to hospital. And then when you're in hospital, you know, you get, you know, you have to transfer to hospital. Then you have to be in hospital and, uh, and, and, and get the experts and whatever. And then eventually you go home and there's still some recovering. Mm. Where, where are we? we? I think we're still, some people are still on the, on the way to hospital. Some are at hospital. Yeah. Triage at the best, yeah, coping with now, yeah, kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, so I think we've got quite a long way. And I also don't think the world will ever be the same. The world of work won't be the same. The world won't be the same. And, well, is that a good thing, do you think? I've got a helicopter going over me. Can you hear it? <laughs> uh, sorry, it's not your helicopter taking it to the next TED Talk, no? It's not me in the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's, that's that's your working they, from home pickup, is it? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're still at work, isn't it? Um, um, what was the question again? So, so, so you said the world will never be the same again. So I'm saying, and in your opinion, is that a good thing? I mean, what do we want to keep from this? What, what's our okay. learning experience we're going to get out of this that we want to hang on to? Well, I think the world of work is never going to be quite the same again, isn't it? Because I think that all sorts of people have tasted homeworking and they're like some of that and they're not mm. like all of it. And then the, there's the bit we're missing, which is the human contact. So, for example, for me, I, I run a small team of 12 people. You know, I, I don't suppose that we'll have a we'll, we'll have an office again. I think maybe we'll rent a room one or two days a week and we'll meet together and then work the home the rest of the time. I think that might happen. I think a lot of organizations will look at, I mean, the cost of a desk, you know, running a desk in London is very expensive. So they look at it and go, well, can we reduce the cost of that? So I think that that's, that's going to be a big difference. Mm. Other people will have, you know, slightly rediscovered to, how to be quieter because we do rush around a lot. But as I say, again, it's uneven, isn't it? Because some people are going to, you know, my, my, my youngest is 21 he's the most depressed sounding I've heard. I've not seen him for eight weeks because he's at his mum's. Uh, I'm divorced. Well, I'm remarried, but you know, but he, he was at lockdown his mum's cause his university shut. And, um, this is not about a comment on his mum at all. It's a comment that he's missing his friends. You know, his, his life was around sport. It was around university studies. Uh, it was around his friends and that whole structure of life's gone. And, you know, asking a 21 year old to motivate themselves is, is difficult. Mm. You know? I completely accept that I'm similar age to you, 55. I've run my own business or been a director of a business for 30 odd years. So I've always been a very self-starting, self, self-motivating sort of person. And I've worked probably on my own from home for the last three or four years anyway. So yeah. for me, my, my complication is my lack of business. You know, all the clients I was dealing with has kind of tailed, tailed off. So I have yeah. no sort of like uh, passive income coming in. And my wife has been furloughed. So I've never worked from home with other people before. Yeah. So, my, so apart from having no income and working with somebody else, my life hasn't really changed a phenomenal yeah. amount. I'm sat in the same chair doing the same thing. I just spend a lot more of it in front of a camera than driving mm. to London every day. And yeah. so I, I'm getting far more done. I'm having far more conversations and getting far more engagement now remotely because everyone's now receptive to this way of communicating. Yeah. So I, I don't think I want to be just going to London every day again. Um, maybe I've got to think about conferences and speaking gigs and how those virtual conferences work, whether the audience still wants to sit in a chair all day for 12, eight hours and, and, and have an all-day conference or whether they, we do little bite-sized snippets, you know, 20 minutes here, hour here, more curated content, more tailored content. I don't know. Or maybe we, maybe the audience is going to be more YouTube savvy and, and, and consume asynchronously in future. Um, who knows? But. Yeah, I've I've kind of decided that I, I can't take my old business and my old momentum and convert it. I've got to almost say to myself, step back. If I was starting from scratch today, how would I do things differently? Mm. That, that's kind of the approach I'm, I'm taking. And uh, that, I think, is going to be a more sustainable approach for, for me and not for everybody, but I think for me. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting that uh, 
there are still some people who are just waiting and biding their time for things to go back again, aren't they? But they're not going to go back quickly anyway. No. We're going to have some sort of social distancing for a year. So, you know, I, I had a split life where I lived partly here. I'm in Dorset and partly in London because, um, yeah, I got remarried relatively recently and Zoe already lived here. So we sort of moved here, but I still have my business in London. So I used to be between the two. I'm not missing London at all, apart from seeing friends in restaurants, <laughs> you know, and actually I've lost a bit of weight because I'm not eating out twice or three times a week and buying sandwiches at lunch. I've not lost weight because I'm trying. I just, it's just a little bit's come off. Not very much and not nearly enough, but you know, but, um, but you know, that, that I'm not sure I want to do that again. In fact, we were having a conversation just last night, you know, how much could we live off? You know, you know, we, we could live off a lot less money than we, I don't know, but I'm not saying I want to earn less, but I'm just saying that I think a lot of people must be having those conversations. But of course, I'm speaking from privilege, you know, mm-hmm. in that I have earned money in life and I don't have a large mortgage and I don't have dependents at home. And so it's very, very different for me than other people. And other people, you know, quite understandably really want to get back to their lives, want to get back to their things. And I think the young people, it falls quite heavily on, you know, I think, I think that, you know, as I say, preschool are really difficult for, for, for the parents, but I think the student age, it's quite hard. It's very hard for them missing their yeah. friends. So going back to your, your science of happiness, and yeah. uh, I mean, you, you touched briefly on what, what your organisation does in terms of employee engagement, I suppose we call that as a high-level sort of thing, um, the staff well-being, feeling the pulse of the organisation, hence the name of your organisation. Um, do, you, do you have any drill-down heat maps of... By, by categories of people, or is it a very high level? I mean, could you say when you talked about this this happiness quotient you've you've defined it, but now way down, is that all sorts of people? Is it by age group, by by background, or could, or could we tell anything more about it? Yeah. So, from not particularly from this very recent data, I haven't done any analysis like that on it, but um, from population studies I've done about happiness in populations and happiness at work. Um, yeah, there were, there were differences definitely between different groups of people. So, you know, if we, if we look in the workplace, then, you know, we can find that people that do, um, professions where there's more human contact are happier. So if you're, um, in, uh, creative industries or caring or something like that, you're, you're happier than you'd expect for your income. Whereas people that are in very detailed jobs, such as lawyers and finance and whatever like that, they're, they're less happy than you expect for their income. And I'm saying that you expect for their income because obviously impact, income has an impact. It's, 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 it's ridiculous to say money doesn't buy you happiness. Money certainly protects you from misery. Um, doesn't necessarily bring total joy, but that's actually part of the, of the game of it. So we do see differences between, we see differences between age groups, you know, uh, we see differences between different size companies. People are happier in smaller companies as a general rule. And that's mainly driven by autonomy, that they have more autonomy and more able to shape their work. They can see the impact of their work. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, we can definitely see these patterns in the data. Um, so, and, you know, and in, in, in Britain, if we look at the happiness of the population, you know, which, which would you think is the most and least happy region in Britain? What would be your guess? Um, well, I suppose typically a year ago, I would have said the North would have been the least happy in some of those, um, working class mining type communities of old would probably be the least happy traditionally, but they probably have a greater sense of community. They probably have a greater sense of, uh, team spirit in those environments. So I would say probably the big cities 
uh, of the South are probably the least happy. They're not used to having this, uh, this talking to each other and, and talking to the neighbours. So I, I'd say some of the older communities are probably stronger. I, I don't know. Have I missed the mark there? No, you've got it pretty good, actually. And it's very rare that people get it right. But London is the least happy region. Yeah. And, it, and it, it's, it, we know actually density of population actually makes people more stressed. Uh, and uh, we also know that inequalities do. And in London, you really experience the inequalities. So you're fine if you've got money in London. But if you haven't got money in London, you really see people living their life with money and it's in your face a lot of the time. Whereas I'm not saying rural poverty is easy, but you actually don't feel as bad in rural communities. So as a general rule, living uh, rural, rural people are happier than, than urban people. Um, but the most happy region of Britain is actually Northern Ireland. Really? And yeah. And uh, it's, it's rural. It's, it's quite rural. Uh, yeah. uh, they're actually very positive. The Irish, uh, almost, uh, almost uh, um, unrealistically sometimes, and um, and also recent experience of the troubles. So actually feeling like life is better than it was. Uh, so um, actually, yeah. So Northern Ireland actually turns out to be the happiest, which is a big surprise. It actually, was to me when I first saw the place. So that, a lot of that, I would say, I'm guessing, um, educated guessing, I suppose, or uneducated guessing, is around the community, around the tribe, around this pulling together, the shared experiences, the, all, you know, the feeling that you've got something to depend on. Whereas in the cities, you're all distant from each other. You're separated from your community, from your family. You're yeah. not with people anymore. So, yeah, in these, in these smaller communities, you've got that. You're totally on the money. My, my first... I think it's about 2002 was my first study of well-being, and it was actually in Nottingham of all places. Uh, and it was a it was a study with um, uh, young people in Nottingham, and I was working for the city council, uh, and they had this hypothesis that people who've moved into into Nottingham were more, you know, entrepreneurial, more, you know, more um, ambitious, and that. So we put a question in about you know whether you were born in Nottingham or not, and to our to their surprise. The people born in Nottingham that lived in Nottingham were happier, but it's community. It's, it's they've got their family, their extended family around it. They're, they're to you the sense of belonging. Mm. They have a strong sense of belonging in the city, and that was part of their happiness. And it was exactly the opposite of what they thought. They thought everyone in Nottingham's in a rut. They're whatever you know, and all these new people are coming in. You know, and it was the opposite. Mm. So you said earlier that uh, you have staff and you've. Um, you've gone to this remote working or disparate working, decentralized working, whatever analogy you want to use. So what have you learned as a, as a leader as such that maybe you didn't realize you had to learn and that you could maybe advise other leaders who are listening to think, well, how do I lead my staff through this? So as a, you know, as the founder and leader, leader of the organization, part of me is about setting vision. So we've had to rethink yeah, some of the, some of the vision stuff, but Partly I'm a, I, I, I don't mean this in a little way, partly I'm a cheerleader. I'm actually encouraging people. And I think that more of my job has become about that is checking in on people. I'm sure like lots of people, we have a Zoom call every morning at 9am. Uh, we've actually, to begin with, you said everyone come out and now actually people can choose to come out or not, but I'm on it every day. I'm available at nine and we chit chat mainly, we, you know, we talk, we know what's happened, what's the weather, what do you watch on TV? How are your kids? What's this? And we, we literally do just a bit of human chit chat. Um, and so 
that's gone from just happening in the office in between things into like half an hour of our day every day. Uh, and for the ones that are in their flats on their own in London, which is a couple of three of my team, you know, I think it's an important part of their day. And for others who've got young children, it might not be. So actually we're starting making it voluntary because they've got so much going on. They just see that as losing a precious half hour of their work. So that's the variability yeah. of the experience there. But it is checking in with everybody more and it is going, how are you? And then when they say fine, you go, no, how are you really? Just going that second one and asking what's underneath it. And, you know, if you don't see anyone, we use Slack, you don't see anyone for a bit. I do just tend to go in, ask how they are. So that I think I'm doing much more of that. Um, and I, I think that's, that's probably very particular yeah. to the circumstances, but I think it's very necessary. That's a good point, what you made there about the how are you asking it twice because I've spoken to a lot of people and people often remark, how are you? used to be this polite thing. We used to say, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Then you get on with stuff. How are you now lasts half an hour? Yeah. And that's an important half an hour. Mm. And I think people, you know, using, you know, I mentioned Brené Brown earlier, but mm. you know, using this vulnerability, being able to share what is really going on in your life is a really powerful thing. And I think a lot more people are finding they, they need to be able to share and they need some empathy. They, they want someone to actually understand how bad or struggle they've got. They want to be able to offload sometimes. I think that how are you conversation is really, really important for someone to feel valued and that, again, that belonging in their, in their, yeah. their work tribe, if you like. Yeah. Cause it's very, very disruptive to us all. I mean, I, we live in a, close in a, in a village and most of the people are retired and are close as it happens. And, you know, I walk out, I go for a walk every day and there's people there that I've never really seen before. And if they're in front garden, I just say, how are you? And you, they, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they'll tell you what they did in the war almost, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it's like I did honestly I had a conversation with a guy down the road and we started talking you know, because he was 80 something, they started talking about the war. And, and, you know, I just think they, you know, trapped inside, it's very hard for people, you know, particularly the over, over 70s or the vulnerable ones. And, mm. and so I, I think it's nice to ask people and, and, but, um, you've got to get, you've got time. I, I've often actually said that the, the currency of happiness and well being is time and how much time. And I think, in, in this, in this, this time, this time, uh, you know, offering our time to people is, is mm. you know, my, my wife goes and visits um, a friend of hers who's, who's much older and isolated and Elizabeth sits in her porch and so sits at least three or four meters away, brings a thermos of coffee and they just talk, you know, and they were friends before, but Elizabeth is absolutely stuck at home. And um, I think Zoe goes around every other day. I think it's a lifeline for Elizabeth. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I certainly detected. And I hate to divide the population to two, but there are people who are generous. They're, they're, they're giving, they're empathic, they're, they're, they show empathy. They care for how somebody else is. And there are people who are more reserved. They're, they're more worried about themselves and they're less interested in, in the lives of others. Uh, and so I think we're seeing that in businesses as well. Some big corporates, the way they react to people, the way people are creating these polarized opinions. And now is the time to pull together and be collaborative and, and form our new tribe mm. and it is to be individual self-serving and profit focused i think it's i'm seeing a lot of these conversations now with people who, who want to come together for a big hug and support each other and i think mm. when you talk about the new norm i think we're going to see a lot more people wanting to collaborate and work together on things 
than than being protectionist and uh, and sort of defensive about themselves. Yeah, I I I, I think you can always split populations into two. I'm quite happy. With <laughs> you needn't worry about that with me. Just drive a bus straight to the middle of the population <laughs> and stereotype everybody. Yeah, <laughs> nothing I like better than a one-zero variable. You're this or you're this. Of course, yeah, yeah. life is much more messy than that. But but you know, there's 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 you know spectrums of things and there's yes. continuums and and and, and the, the character. But you know, the ones that are more selfish are probably, you know, there's personality, circumstance, reasons why, you know, they might not have grown up in generous, loving families. I mean, you, you just don't know why these people are like that. Of course. And so, you know, there's, there's things about that, but the business world can be quite brutal and quite difficult uh, sometimes. And, and I think that, you know, we've seen it. Actually, we, the best place we see it is with world leaders, isn't it? We, people revert to type. I mean, you know, the difference between, you know, Trump and, I can't remember how you say her name, the New Zealand. Jacinda. Jacinda, is it? I mean, she's just a joy. But, you know, and and actually, you know, I mean, Boris has had an interesting journey and and actually he he comes across as quite genuine with his concern. I mean, I'm not, I, you know, uh, I don't mind saying I've never voted Tory in my life, but but I I actually you know in some ways I I had some respect for him about how he was dealing with. He's very straightforward. I mean, Trump is a different thing altogether. I mean, I don't understand how anyone can even make up that character, let alone <laughs> president. But you know, but um, but you know, he he is he's gone instinctively to divide. That's what he does. You know, he divides people. He, he he gets authoritarian. He thinks he knows everything. I mean, it's extraordinary watching it out. And so mm. I think that in all our businesses, we've got our Trumps, we've got our, what's her name, the New Zealand woman again? I think Jacinda, isn't it? Arden, yeah, wasn't it? Is yeah, it? So, anyway, so, yeah. uh, and, you know, and hopefully you work for someone like Jacinda rather than someone like Trump, you know. But mm. if you work for Trump, they're going to be even more difficult because they're stressed. I mean, actually, he is acting out of stress, Trump himself, you know. I mean, you can look at him as a distressed little boy acting out with his toys, you know, I mean, it's just a bit of a shame he's supposed to be president of one of the largest countries in the world. But, yeah. you know, psychologically, he's an interesting character. Yes, it's interesting. As you say, it's, I suppose he, he grew his business not having anyone recording all his conversations and, and caring about every tweet. And yeah. now everyone's amplifying is is very, well, he thinks out loud without a filter and, talk, and just comes straight out of his mouth. I think he's never been used to someone actually recording it He's always been be able to bully someone into, that's not what I said. And they used to go, okay, it's not what you said. These aren't the droids you're looking for. And now people go, no, actually, that is what you said. And actually, yeah. that is what you said. Yeah. And no, that wasn't sarcasm. No, that wasn't wit. That wasn't you being funny. That was That is actually what you said. And he's not used to having that, that kind of real detailed scrutiny. And I think it's, it's um, I, I, I agree. I mean, with, with, however you vote, uh, Boris is doing a job and he's, he's doing it with his heart and his soul. And yeah. I think there's a lot of emotion and passion there, not yeah. self-serving interests. I, I think he, he genuinely cares about himself, the world, the country, the economy. He's yeah. desperately upset about the deaths and, and the struggles people go through. Yeah. And I, and that comes across in the briefings. I think most of the people who stand on the podium on a, on an afternoon around four or five o'clock all will have that same responsibility. The burden of the world is on their shoulders and, and yeah. that must be a, a real, they didn't sign up for this a year ago. This wasn't no. on, on the roadmap. Um, and now everybody's kind of realizing that their, their, their business plan, for the future, the country plan for the future is not what they thought it was going to be. And that's, it's a real shock, I guess, for everyone. It is. It's an interesting, you know, 
expression of leadership. And I actually quite like seeing him grapple with his libertarian self that he didn't want to shut everything down. And so you really knew that he took it with a heavy heart to lockdown, you know, and actually I think possibly we lost two, three weeks and and there's other things that almost certainly wasn't great decision-making early on, you know, but you know, you sort of felt he was a man struggling with something which was a very difficult decision. And he sort of wanted to sort of find a way a bit more like Sweden have done. And and it was impractical. And and then, you know, and so actually, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I'm sure in our businesses that's going on. I think some people will have been really compassionate in the way that they've had to furlong and and make some people redundant or or, or, or cut wages. And some will have been just brutal and they've just been displaying their colours. And so yeah, interesting times. Yeah. Well, many thanks, Nick. I mean, that's been, I've, we had a really great conversation there. I'm sure everyone listening will, will agree there's much to ponder on and take some inspiration. So, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah. So, um, so my company's called Friday Pulse, and you can just Google Friday Pulse, FridayPulse.com. Uh, we we measure and improve team morale. We're actually free to use during the crisis for any organization up to a thousand people. So if you're interested in finding out more, you can, you can look on the website. Uh, I myself, uh, I'm on LinkedIn very actively. That's how I found you. I didn't stalk you. I sent you one message saying <laughs> if you're looking for a guest on your podcast. And um, I'm on LinkedIn, Nick Marks. Uh, Nick is without a K. Uh, NickMarks.org, again, without a K, is my website. I put up an article most weeks. I do miss some weeks, but most weeks I put up an article on there. Um, so that's really where you can find me. I, I am on vaguely on Twitter on I am Nick Marks. I'm not okay. good with Twitter. So that's Nick without a K, but Marks with a K. It is exactly that, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, I'm sure people will, will get in contact and find out more. I mean, the offer of the uh, the server or the, the, the Pulse for up to a 1,000 people during this time is a very generous offer. I'm sure that people will want to take that up. Yeah. So thank you to all the listeners. Uh, big thanks for listening and tuning in. So please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S, Bytes. And please tell your friends and colleagues. I've got a number of exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next weeks and months. And also remember, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please do let me know. I would welcome any comments, feedback you may have to joe.rockwood at seedchangehappen.co.uk. Tell me about how we can improve future shows or tell me topics you'd like me to cover. So my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been a pleasure to be your host for this podcast today. See you soon. Bye.